I think songs are one of the most significant drivers of culture in the world. We often think that politicians direct the course of human events. Uh, we think that the economy collects and directs the human will to grow and achieve. However, today I want to argue that what we sing drives what we love. It drives what we have a passion for and what we'll direct our lives towards. This has actually been known pretty much all throughout the course of human history. If you look back at debates in church history in particular, you'll see that often uh, the direction the populace goes is often aligned with those who can write the best songs. Martin Luther was known for putting church hymns to bar songs, right? And the songs of the Reformation were put into the songs, the tunes of the people. Uh, we often think about the revivals of the United States being at the feet of Jonathan Wesley's preaching, but we have to also remember Charles Wesley's hymn writing. Soldiers have historically marched into battle singing songs for their side. We sing the national anthem still at sporting events. Throughout history, we've recognized that songs drive culture. And you know, it's interesting. Many of us scoffed at the you know, fundamentalists that said, hey, all of this music that we're singing is going to lead to bad things. But when we actually look back at the course of human history, we recognize that the sexual revolution was crammed down our throats through songs. What we sing directs what we love. And what we love is what we will will towards. And then we'll justify it later. The Thomas Cramner scholar Ashley Knoll, he has a great saying. He says, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. What we have an affection for is what our lives will be directed by. And then we'll explain it away later. And so often in our lives, where our will is directed is by what we love, and what we love is directed by what we sing. Today, I want to look at 2 Timothy 2, verses 10 through 13, and I particularly want to look at 11 through 13. If you open up your Bibles, you'll notice that 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13 is set kind of uniquely compared to the rest of the text, that's because it's believed to be an ancient hymn of the church. Just like Philippians chapter 2 is considered to be a song that the early church sang, so too 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13 is a song that Paul is quoting in Holy Scripture. The church has always known that catechism, what we believe, how our hearts are formed, are not, is not merely directed by the spoken word, what is preached or said from, uh, during the scripture readings, but is also directed by what we sing. And the church's heart has always been formed by the hymns that they sing. So today I want to look at this important hymn that Paul is quoting in our text. And I want to look at three things. It follows a pretty similar structure to so many things in Holy Scripture. In fact, it follows the structure of what I hope is basically all of my sermons. Okay? It starts with a word of comfort, then it moves to a word of conviction, and then it ends with a word of comfort. How many of you have ever had like an annual review with an employee, right? You start with, you know, hey, you're doing great. Here's where you need to improve. 
hey, you're doing great, right? If you don't tend to do that, things don't tend to go super well, especially not today. But, you know, that's just how humans have always been. That's how God interacts with us. He starts with a word of comfort. He moves to a word of challenge, and then he ends with a word of comfort. So here's how, it, how it's structured, or here's what he says. He says, first, if we have died with Christ, we will surely live with him. Then he says, hey, but, but if you disown Christ, he'll disown you. But then it concludes with, if you're faithless, he'll remain faithful. So how do we understand that? Today, I particularly want to look at the warning passages of Scripture. I think the warning passages all over the Bible plague many Christians, and they don't know how to interpret them. And so today, my hope is that we can better understand how do we look at warnings in the Holy Scripture without leading to despair and fear. So if you would, turn with me to 2 Timothy 2, verses 10 through 13. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy for, and then here's the hymn, if we have died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Paul begins by setting the tone for this hymn by reminding us who who he's writing to. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul's very clearly situating this here in that he's talking to Christians. He's talking to Christians that he dares to call the elect. Those that God have known before the foundations of the world and have chosen to enter into life with him. He's talking about those who are secure. Those that have had uh, a life-transforming event where the Holy Spirit shows them the glory of Christ, moves them into faith with him, and saves them. And he says, everything I'm suffering, remember, he's in prison, he's facing death. All of that is worth it for the sake of the elect. I've heard it said before that if you're reformed, then you won't believe in evangelism because if God's in charge and he's going to decide who's elect and who's not, why do evangelism? Paul didn't seem to think there was a dichotomy here. Rather, he's understood that God works out his process of election through his servants and especially through his servants suffering for him, showing the suffering servant Jesus Christ. So that's an important piece especially for when we get to the warning passages later. Remember, who is he talking to? He's talking to those that, he has cho- that God has chosen to love as an act of grace. And then what does he say? What's the first word of comfort? The saying is trustworthy, for we, if, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Here are the words of comfort that the gospel brings that death doesn't have the final word. The great fear of the human heart is death. Not just that we will, you know, have a demise, our bodies will stop working, but that it will actually be the end. That we will die in alienation from one another, that we will die in alienation from God himself, that we will die in our sins. And yet, where does the gospel meet us? 
The gospel meets us in the God who chose to take death upon himself in Christ Jesus, to die upon the cross the death that we deserved, to die in my place and in your place, taking the full punishment for my sins upon himself and dying my death alienated from God, alienated from the world, rejected and scorned, Jesus took all of that off of our shoulders and placed it upon his own. For what purpose? So that three days later, he could breathe the very first breath of resurrected life, the hope of resurrection, that we are resurrected from death itself, from death of alienation from God, from death of alienation from one another, from the death of sin itself, that we might be raised to new and eternal life. And then our passage continues, if we endure, we will also reign with him. It's not merely this image of being resurrected into, you know, a life of of resurrected life that we have right now. It's also an eschatological forward-looking hope in which we recognize that we will one day be resurrected into the very kingdom of God where we are royalty there as brothers and sisters reigning with Jesus. I think there has been a course corrective in much of our piety that has told us a myth and a lie. And here's the myth and the lie. If you are too heavenly minded, you will do no earthly good. That is just immaturity. I don't know how else to put that. That's not historically accurate. Brothers and sisters, those that are most heavenly minded throughout history have been the most earthly good. Those who have recognized that they are journeying to a land where there will be no sin, where there will be no class divides and race divides and sex divides that where we are constantly at war with one another and placing our hope not in the politicians of our day, not in the ability to fix ourselves today, but placing our hope in the world to come. What has that done? It's actually ushered in change today because we have something that we are anchored towards. We have a goal that we are directed towards. We have a hope that we are set towards. And what has that done in the heart of the Christian? It's actually transformed us to seek justice in our world today, to seek love and reconciliation in our world today, to seek God's shalom in our world today, to be of earthly good as Christians, we must first be people that are heavenly minded, to have our hopes anchored in the life that is to come and to seek the breaking in of that life today. Don't buy the myth that being heavenly-minded means you will be escapist. Just read church history. That's not true. In fact, the most heavenly-minded are those that are so often the most filled with love and charity and a heart for reconciliation in our world today. So what do we see here? We see a word of comfort, of being reminded of who we are. We are a people of life. We are a people who one day will be raised to eternal life reconciled life, a life that is so different because it is not marred by sin. And that life is meant to break into the world today. So first we see a word of comfort. Now let's continue because we see a word of challenge. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. 
If we deny him, he also will deny us. The commentator Robert Yarbrough, who's probably written my favorite commentary on, on 2 Timothy, or it's up there. He, he says, hey, you know, maybe a, a more striking word for deny is disown. That's actually in the lexical range. Both, actually, I think some uh, New, New Testament translations have that in the English today, but the ESV doesn't. So this is talking about disowning Christ. And Jesus repeatedly warns us against doing this. In Matthew 10, 33, he says, Whoever disowns me before men, I will also disown before my Father who is in heaven. But here's a complexity. Jesus prophesied that Peter was going to disown him three times. And then he redeems Peter. There's a complexity. Here's another complexity. Our gospel reading today. Jesus in John chapter 6, verses 37 and through 39 says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So what we see here is a complexity. Jesus issues warnings, don't deny me or I'll deny you. He tells Peter, hey, you're going to deny me, and then he redeems him. In John chapter, uh, what was it? Was it chapter 10? <coughs> six. John chapter 6. He says, hey, I won't lose anyone that I call to myself. And then Paul also, in 2 Timothy 2, says he's talking to the elect, and then issues a warning. So how do Christians understand warning passages without spiraling into fear and doubt and despair. Because I've seen so many Christians look at momentary parts of their lives where they feel like, oh no, I feel like I've crossed the line, I've disowned Jesus. I didn't stand for him in this moment. I haven't been faithful to him in this loss. All of these things. And you begin to ask yourself, if I were to die right now, you know, if I were to die last week, I'd be saved. But if I were to die right now, I wouldn't be. But then we see Jesus saying, hey, I'm not going to lose you. So how do we understand warning passages? I'd like to give you an example that might help clarify this. Because I think we actually need a bit more imagination to understand this. Some of you know I like to read Russian literature. You know that? Some of you know that. And my favorite Russian novelist is a man named Fyodor Dostoevsky, the greatest writer of all time. Okay. And Dostoevsky, he's, he's tedious. And he's difficult at times, but he's incredible. And Dostoevsky, I would say, you know, he's in the ABCs and Ds of the great theologians of the face. Augustine, Aquinas, um, Bavink and Bart, Calvin and Dostoevsky. Those are the big guns of the faith. Um, I'm kidding. But no, Dostoevsky's great. So if you read a lot of Dostoevsky, and I've, I think I've read all of it, you see that he actually just says the same thing over and over again. In fact, some of the stories are verbatim the same. They're vignettes. And, and here are the themes that he addresses over and over again. He talks about how if humanity, and he's writing in the latter half of the 19th century in Russia, before the Bolshevik Revolution, you have to remember that. He said, if humanity loses faith in God, if God is dead, then there is no more guiding principles of morality. Anything is permissible. 
And then you also have this other theme. He looks at young people. And this is really stark in crime and punishment and in the possessed. He looks at young people who have been caught up in the atheism of their day. And the atheism of their day is mixed with resentment for the upper classes. And that mixment of atheism, which allows for anything, and resentment for the upper classes, ends up with young idealists killing someone for the sake of their ideal. And the point that he's trying to make is, if resentment fuels your ideology and you do not have a God that you are morally responsible to, you will do things you never thought you could do. You will commit atrocities you didn't think you could commit. And he tells that story over and over again. And then what happened in 1917 in Russia? The Russian Revolution in which the Bolsheviks took over, young ideologues, and then they ushered in the greatest dystopia the world has ever seen upon the back of ideology that was meant to be for, you know, uh, universal egalitarian society was untethered from God and the young people did what they never thought they could do and they imposed the greatest man-made famine in history which wiped out uh, just an enormous number of people in the Ukraine they sent people to the gulags and they just outright murdered people for almost all of the 20th century and why do I like to read that? Why do I like to read Dostoevsky, who, like a prophet, saw all of that coming? Because I need reminders of where I will go if resentment drives the bus. We need this as a culture, because if you haven't noticed, both political parties are driven by resentment now. I'm not a politician. I'm just going to say it. They are. Do we really want resentment to drive the bus? Have we not recognized in history where that leads when resentment drives the bus? It leads to the justification of things you never thought you could do. Now, I won't lie to you. I have no temptation to be a Marxist. Marxist ideology is nuts to me, okay? Right? But I read books that warn against it to be reminded of where I don't want to go. So too, warning passages in the Bible given to the faithful are reminders of if you start down the path of disowning Christ Jesus, if you dethrone him from the center of your life, this is where it leads. It only leads to your death. It only leads to alienation from God. It only leads to greater suffering and so it serves as this great course corrector in our lives to ask ourselves, where am I functionally disowning Jesus? Where am I dethroning him from my life for the perpetual reminder of where it leads? It is a component of discipleship in which God reminds the faithful, his elect, those that he won't disown. Just remember, that when you start down the path of disowning me, this is where it goes. And so it serves as a great catechetical mechanism where the Spirit brings us back 
to the truth again and again that there is only one who can rule over our lives and we cannot disown him. So my question for you today is where are you being tempted to disown Jesus? Is it to keep your status among others? Because your status is more precious to you than being with Jesus? Is it because you want to have authority over your ethical life or your financial life or your social life or your thought life? Remember, it only leads to one place. It only leads to greater suffering, not the life. But some of you right here, right now, might be saying, Tim, I believe what you're saying is true for everyone else in the room. But those warning passages are still for me because I don't know that I'm saved. I keep, you know, trying to be faithful. I seek the Lord. And some days I hear his voice and some days I don't. Some days I feel faithful and some days I feel unfaithful. You know, if I were to die last week, I'd be pretty confident. But if I were to die this week, I am in big trouble. Some of you might still be saying, I hear you and I want to believe what you are saying, but I can't. I remember once being on the phone with a guy I grew up with um, who just, his life became a wreck. And he was raised in a radical fundamentalist church and I was preaching the gospel to him and he kept saying, I want to believe that's true, but I just can't. And many of us were raised in, in very specific church traditions that lack all sense of security, whether that's, you know, a radical free will tradition or, which is, I think, the worst of all worlds, a, a, a quasi-reformed Calvinistic tradition that lacks security. By the way, Calvin would have hated those churches and hated the fact they used his name. Um, but what do we see? Well, I believe in election, but I have no security that I'm amongst the elect. And here's what God says to that, to both groups, to those that wonder, to those that doubt, to those that say, is my faithfulness enough this week? What does he say? The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Brothers and sisters, a good God does not adopt children and then always tell them he might send them back to the orphanage. My prayer for so many of you is that you would walk in confidence knowing that, yes, this week you might feel less faithful, but that our God has chosen to be faithful to you. And if that is not the starting place of your doctrine, if that is not the starting place of your theology, you will never fully know God as your father. This is why I talk about attachment theory so much with you all, right? Because the image that God gives us for salvation is the image of a father adopting children to himself. And children that are properly attached to their parents don't question whether or not they're going to be sent away at the drop of a hat. Our God is a far greater father than any of us can ever be. And that means he's a God and a father who always maintains security with his children.
And this is why our church is named Trinity, by the way. It's because our salvation is rooted in Trinitarian theology. Look at what he says here. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot deny what? He cannot deny himself, or us? No, he says he cannot deny himself. Why is he saying that? How are we saved? By the Holy Spirit, you are hidden in Jesus, clothed in Jesus, united to Jesus like a branch to a vine. And guess what? The very foundational reality of all of existence is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit exist in perfect unity, faithfulness, and love. And if you have been adopted into that perfect triune life through the Holy Spirit, adopting you and bringing you into the Son, can you ever be lost? Does the Father ever reject his perfect eternal Son? That security is yours. Brothers and sisters, security doesn't lead to faithlessness. That's the myth. If we give people too much security, they won't be obedient. That's not how humans work. That's not how God made us. Rather, security leads to ever-increasing faithfulness to the God who remains faithful to us. My prayer is that this song would ever be upon your hearts. This song would be sung in your homes. And this song would be sung eternally, as our God calls you home. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the one who has chosen to be faithful to us. In your mercy, you have chosen to bring us through your Holy Spirit and unite us to your Son, who you always smile upon in the perfect love of the Trinity. Lord, would we take hope? Would we have faith? Would we have eyes to see that you are faithful to us? And Lord, would that ever increasingly lead us to faithfulness to you? To the glory of your name, Jesus. Amen.